and welcome back to the show. This is our uh, book talk segment, and we're going to talk uh, comedy tonight, particularly comedy writing from one of the best in the business. And if you recognize that music, you may have recognized from uh, the early Saturday Night Live years, and our guest has written for Saturday Night Live in the heyday when it began. He's uh, written for uh, all the great names, including Billy Crystal. He's written for Gary Shandling, and, uh, of course, uh, he's been on with uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, written for that show, and, of course, Saturday Night Live. And uh, the new book out is called Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. We're joined tonight by Alan Zweibel on the telephone for a couple of minutes. And, uh, Alan, great to talk with you. Also good to talk to a fellow Long Islander. You're talking to another one here. <laughs> Where are you from, Doug? Floral Park. Okay, so my old accountant who died lived in Floral Park. Oh, really? <laughs> but he's dead, so I don't <laughs> Maybe we knew him. I don't know. <laughs> All right, well, I'll give you his name afterwards. That's you know, right. I <laughs> well, I knew you were a Long Island guy, and I've seen you on uh, different shows and heard you on different shows. You're from uh, Woodmere, right? Yeah, we started in Wontaw, and then uh, my father had a couple of very good seasons in the jewelry business. Right. So we moved to the five towns. Yeah, so we moved to Woodmere, and I graduated Hewlett High School. Yeah, we. I went to high school in uh, Garden City, and one of our rivalry schools was in Woodmere. So I know I know the area well. But uh, always good to talk to a Long Island guy. It's a little different uh, than New York City. Long Island people are, are different, good in a good way. <laughs> I, I, I like it. I had fun growing up there, and I like going back there. And um, you know, the Long Island Book Festival is fun to do. And uh, whenever I have a book that comes out. Uh, I'm usually booked in a couple of venues out there, and I, I find the people very warm and uh, a lot of fun. Haven't been up there in a while. i got to get back. But uh, now are you, you're in Jersey now, right? You're based mostly? I'm in, I'm in New Jersey. Right. After dividing our time for many years between Los Angeles and Jersey, uh, we ended up uh, coming back to New Jersey full-time because uh, that's where our children and grandchildren are. And uh, But I'm on a lot of planes when you were allowed to fly on a plane right. back and forth to L.A., depending upon the movie or whatever it is I'm doing out there. Yeah, how, how's it going? Obviously, uh, you know, you, you have a book in mind uh, to be published at a certain date, and nobody could predict what's happened. Has that affected it a lot? I know you can do it like you're doing radio on the phone tonight, but uh, has it affected the book tour much? Well, I'll tell you how it affected the book tour. There is no tour. I mean, the, I, I, the 92nd Street Y here in New York City, for example, a couple of weeks ago to launch the book, the night of the launch, I was scheduled to be in conversation with Lewis Black, and that was sold out. But then it had to be uh, postponed, right. you know, until God knows when. And then a week later, doing the same thing in Los Angeles with my friend Larry David, that was postponed. However, um, you know, you make up for it in different ways, not only on things like this, but, uh, you know, a lot of Zoom interviews and the media has picked up on this book a lot. The reviews have been terrific. Uh, and what it is, is like in the middle of all of this, uh, people want a diversion. They want a couple of laughs, and they're finding this book to be that. So I'm very grateful for that. I'm sorry it was at this price, though. I'd rather be on tour <laughs> and, you know, in front of a lot of people and uh, on the late-night talk shows. But, um, you, you know, you adjust. I had a chance to read through the book. Jeff sent it uh, to me, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I've kind of, always been kind of a, uh, a student of, uh, of, of comedy. My uncle, uh, I don't know if you knew him. He was obviously before uh, probably your time as well. His name was Tom Dillon. He was the shepherd of the Lambs Club. I know you're a friar, and he was in the Lambs, and he worked with a guy named Bert Wheeler. So we always had kind of comedy in our family. Uh, we kind of kept uh, you know, what was going on there. He was on Ed Sullivan a bunch of times, all the, all the shows. But uh, I've always enjoyed uh, kind of the history of comedy, and, and your book really 
really goes into that, not only your history, but uh, some of the great uh, comedians you've worked with. Well, you know, I've, I've been really lucky. And one of the reasons I wrote this book, uh, you know, I go around the country and I give um, have speaking engagements and uh, I tell my story. And I realized somewhere along the way that um, I may be the only one or the last one whose career spans the Catskill Mountains through SNL, through its Gary Shandling show, through Letterman, for whom I also wrote, right. Broadway, and most recently a movie that I did with uh, my friend Billy Crystal that will star Billy and uh, Tiffany Haddish. We're editing it now. And so I realized that there's a big span there, and I've been fortunate enough to be on the forefront of a lot of changes in comedy. So at the behest of uh, a few people who saw me speak, um, I finally said, okay, let me write this down. So that's what this book is. You mentioned the Borscht Belt. Uh, again, as we mentioned, I grew up in Long Island. I never got to go there specifically, but you always you know, saw the ads who the great comedians were up there. I guess in the heyday of the 50s and 60s, uh, all the big names started out up there, a lot of them anyway. That, that must have been a lot of fun for you. You were a young guy uh, starting out your career writing writing jokes up there for a, a comedian I remember from mostly game shows, Morty Gunty. <laughs> well, you know, in, in the 50s and the 60s, the Catskills was the breeding ground for a comedy, you know, and that's where people like Buddy Hackett and Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and Tony Fields and Alan King, that's where they worked before they got their big, their big break right. to um, have their own shows, you know, their own, their own variety series, their own situation comedies, certainly their own Las Vegas act. So by the time I got there in the early 70s, right out of college, um, it was very, very uh, sentimental for me to go back there because I remembered going there as a kid. Our parents would take us there on a Labor Day weekend, Memorial Day weekend, and I would sneak into the, um, uh, you know, into the nightclubs and watch these comedians that I wasn't allowed to see because I was 12 and 13 years old. <laughs> and now I'm up there writing for a bunch of them. So, yeah, it was a real kick at first. Just from talking to some of the comedians over the years and, and reading about it, because you talk about it in your book as well. That, those were the toughest audiences, obviously, uh, and, and you had to forge your act up there or else you, you pretty much were booed off the state or people walked out. Wasn't that the deal up there? People walked out on you. <laughs> well, not, not when I was there, but you know what they had a lot of times? They, they, they didn't laugh. They gave you what looked like wooden lollipops. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there were knockers, they were called. And if you thought something was funny, you knocked it on the table. And there were a lot of times you didn't hear any knocks. <laughs> you know, I wish I had been, was able to go up there. Just reading about it, it, it sounded like it was a, a lot of fun. And uh, uh, for many years, it was the vacation spot for people from you know New York, Long Island. Uh, unfortunately, I guess there's nothing left there, right? Maybe one or two hotels left. It's pretty much gone, right? Well, they're all gone, and the ones that are left, um, the culture is different. It isn't any, um, it, it, you know, they hung out, and they worked for many years uh, in the red with the hopes that um, gambling, gambling would come right. up there yeah. and resuscitate the, uh, the region the way it did with uh, Atlantic City. Well, that never happened. Yeah. So slowly but surely, hundreds of hotels started closing and closing, and bungalow colonies and all these places where comedians got their start, you know, and, but at its peak, you know, the uh, Concord Hotel, which was one of the, it's not the biggest one. It had until MGM, the MGM grants 
was built in Las Vegas in the early 80s. Until then, the Concord Hotel had the biggest nightclub in the country. It was like 3,100 people it sat, it seated. You know, so it was, um, in its heyday, yeah, that was the spot. That, that, That was the place to get your start. And that was the place to come back to when you were a star so you could be a headliner. Laugh Lines is the name of the book, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. And uh, 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 Alan Zweibel is our guest. And uh, we mentioned uh, you got started writing jokes. Uh, I guess you start kind of having those funny thoughts, uh, writing them down as, as a kid. Uh, what was kind of, I know you talk about it in the book, but what was kind of the first time you realized, hey, I can write something down that other people are going to laugh at? When I was in high school and I hadn't studied for a test, I would write a poem that explained why I wasn't prepared to take the test that day and it would make the teacher laugh, uh, she would still fail me. <laughs> but at least she laughed, okay? Uh, you know, and then it, it, it just sort of snowballed when I went to college. I went to the University of Buffalo and I would watch the Dick Cavett show. I watched Johnny Carson had a show here in New York. Sure. Get this, and, I was here. and there was a show called That Was the Week That Was in the 60s. And I would send uh, material to them that I wrote in my dorm room. Same thing with Mad Magazine. And I didn't sell anything, but the stuff they were doing, either in their monologues on television or publishing in Mad Magazine, I saw that my stuff was close enough. It it was what professional writers were doing, and I took that as encouragement. Do you know what I mean? That maybe I did have something to offer. There's always, uh, everybody thinks, oh, I can tell a joke or write a joke, but there's a special talent. You obviously have it to take something going on in the news or something you see and, and kind of you know, condensing it into one or two lines and, and having that punchline. It's a special talent. I, I, obviously, you have that. Uh, did you just kind of develop it on your own? Did you yeah, realize I you had it? it? Because, once again, the Catskill guys, they were all about setups and punchlines. They, did, they weren't storytellers. Right. They weren't uh, people like George Carlin or David Steinberg, people who came later. You know, my friend Billy Crystal, my friend Larry David, yeah, they were hilarious. But they told their jokes within a context of a story. Right. And that's what you know, Robert Klein, you know, so that was my generation. Uh, before I got to Catch a Rising Star and the Improvisation, which is where those guys were starting, uh, those were two showcase clubs in New York in the 70s. When I was up in the Catskills, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, more of a staccato kind of rhythm. Da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da, punchline. You know what I'm saying? Right. And then I got tired of writing for those guys that were twice my age. They didn't have <laughs> the same life experience I did, you know, whether it be Woodstock or wanting to talk about uh, Watergate, you know, Nixon resigning. So I took all the jokes those old guys wouldn't buy from me, and I put made a stand-up comedy act for myself, and went on stage in these places, found you know like Catch a Rising Star, to advertise the material. I didn't want to be a comedian. I just told the jokes with the hopes that a manager or an agent would come along, like the material, and uh, want to uh, represent me. And one night, uh, Lorne Michaels saw me, right. and he was putting together a show called Saturday Night Live that was going to premiere in the fall. And he was looking for actors and writers in um, all the New York clubs. And uh, I had a meeting with him that was set up by my agent, a man named Leon Memoli, set it up for me. And I went there, and I gave Lorne a binder with about 1,100 jokes in it. And he, in front of me, he read the first joke, 
And then he closed the binder and we just chatted, you know, and um, I, I left the binder with him. He had, you know, obviously he went through all of it and he had to give it to the NBC executives. But, you know, if you ask Lauren, he'll tell you the basis of that one joke. He was so smart. He would read one joke and determine whether or not he liked the sensibility of the writer, the ingenuity that it took to write that joke. And that's how it happened with me, you know, so. I, that was the end of my stand-up comedy career, and I became a writer, one of the original writers on SNL when it started in 75. What, what was the joke, the, the, the stamp joke, if you want to tell it? If not, yeah, it's okay. I was it that one? <laughs> joke saying that the post office was about to issue a stamp commemorating prostitution in the United States. The 10-cent stamp, you want to lick it, it's a quarter. <laughs> I love and, that and, joke. <laughs> and and what, what's interesting is, when I go around the country, like I said, I do speaking engagements. If I go to a college and I tell my story and I tell them that joke to 18 and 19 year olds, a lot of them go, well, why, why would you want to lick a stand? Right, right. I know that's the adhesive <laughs> on the back. So, you know, that joke is slowly, 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 um, you know, headed for the door. <laughs> you know? so tell them to read a book, realize what it was used to be like. That's a funny joke. Yeah, but, well, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> they can't be outdated. It's funny. <laughs> and yeah. then, of course, you started with Saturday Night Live and uh, and worked in really the, the beginnings of it. Now, I, I have to say, I was in eighth grade when it came on. I didn't get to get really into the show for a couple of years after until it's, uh, I guess, maybe third or fourth year. That's when high school kids, I guess, started to watch it. But, uh, boy, a lot of books have been written on just that show alone. But uh, being part of that writing staff and, and the great cast, uh, you talk, of course, about Gilda Radner and all the people you worked with, uh, uh, quite a time. Well, I worked with them all, you know, with Gilda and Belushi and Aykroyd. You know, Lorraine Newman, and then people like Steve Martin uh, with Host, and Buck Henry, who was my idol right. growing up. And so the people who came through with doors, and then Chevy leaves, and Bill Murray replaces him. You know, it, and you, you look at the 45-year history of that show, the people who came through it, Will Ferrell and Tina Fey and Amy Pola and Lovitz and Adam Sandler and Dennis Miller, it goes on and on and on, you know, and it's in its 45th season now. I think personally that Kate McKinnon is a gift from God, you know, and uh, he's especially strong. You know, it's just the, the talent that has been on that show, both acting and writing, is just phenomenal. It's almost amazing. And again, you talk about it in the book as well, but other people, you know, read about uh, that have been on the show. The limited time, obviously, you have to put it together when you're doing a live show. You have five days, and really a lot of it isn't written until almost maybe Wednesday, sometimes not even until Saturday afternoon, right? So it's it's amazing how much great work has been done in that short amount of time during a week. Well, the bulk of the show is written on Tuesday. Right. There's a read-through on Wednesday, and it's determined what sketches would be in. And you have to do it that way because, that's you know, now sets have to be built, and wardrobe has to be designed. So there's a process that goes that, that that begins. As far as the writing is concerned, you tweak your sketches up until airtime and weekend update. I remember that there were times that after the uh, dress rehearsal uh, in front of an audience on Saturday night, I, once that audience left, I would go up to my uh, office, watch TV, and if something on the 11 o'clock news struck me as funny, 
I would write a joke and it would be on television a half hour later on Weekend Update. <laughs> you know, now I write books, I write plays, I write movies. Um, and if I'm lucky, it doesn't see, you know, it, it, it sees the light of day two years from now. That's if I'm lucky. The movie I just finished shooting with Billy Crystal that uh, with he and Tiffany Haddish, it was based on a short story that I had written. And once Billy and I started writing it, it was three years until the, the script was really in shape and we right. started casting and getting the financing and, and whatever. Whereas with SNL or any television show, but certainly a live TV show, you know, there was one show that we did on SNL. Uh, it was a live show down from the Mardi Gras. Oh, sure. In um, uh, Louisiana. And um, I was on the reviewing stand and I was under the desk writing jokes and handing it up to them while they were on the air. <laughs> so that's pretty immediate, you know. Yeah, I, I was just going to ask you about that. You were literally handing jokes while I was on the air. So that, that was the Mardi Gras show. I didn't realize that was the one. I knew you had done that. But, yeah, it was the yeah. Mardi Gras show. Yeah. And we had had all these jokes about a, a parade that was supposed to pass in front of the reviewing stand. Right. So we had a list of all the floats and all the uh, exhibits and everything. And there was a mishap at the beginning of the parade. I, I, I never got it straight whether somebody died or got run over or something. But <laughs> there was, the parade never came. And we had all these jokes about, you know, uh, about floats that never well, never saw them. Yeah, right. So we had to, Herb Sargent and Buck Henry and I, Jane Curtin was the other anchor person with Buck, but me, Herb Sargent, and Buck were writing jokes about there not being a parade and what you would have seen had this float went by on time. <laughs> Alan Zweibel is our guest. Laugh Lines is the name of the book. And uh, I always wondered, like, uh, obviously you were on one of the iconic shows, but do you ever kind of wish maybe for, uh, you know, a half a season or something, you could have been back in the in the 50s writing for Sid Caesar or Uncle Milty or, or those shows to see what that was like to be in the writer's well, room? Well, I'm not so sure about Uncle Milty. That was a little broad <laughs> to me. But, but, but um, my idols, and I was lucky enough to be friend, become friends with, Mel Brooks and Paul Reiner and Larry Gelbart, you know, the guys who are the core writing staff of your show is shows. Right. My God, if I were older, yeah, I wish I, you know, the only times I wish I was older is if I romanticize a little bit, I would have liked to have been alive in uh, New York when the cabaret life was really, you know, at its peak or uh, a few years before I came around Greenwich Village, you know, oh, sure. um, bitter end. Yeah, the bitter end is still there, and it was always a, a place where people started. But I'm talking about when it was really vibrant, when Richard Pryor was starting there, and and and, and people like that, you know, um, when you know, it, it was a few years before I came around. You know, that would have been fun. And the TV shows that existed at the infancy of television, like your show or shows, I'm reading uh, Woody Allen's. Um, uh, memoir right now called Apropos of Nothing and it tells about those days and because uh, he was on a lot of those writing staffs and it just and I learned about it from Herb Sargent and Buck Henry it sounds like it was a different world back then and uh, 
Yeah, I would have loved to have, uh, have experienced it. Yeah, I would have loved that too. My parents, obviously, they were uh, you know, older parents when they had us, my sister and me, but they uh, enjoyed going to the shows back then in the in the 50s and uh, you know places like the Copacabana and uh, 21 and uh, all the, the store club, I guess, all those places that had the great entertainers. And, of course, you mentioned the early 60s with the, the coffee houses. I guess that's where a lot of the, like Woody Allen and Joan Rivers, they all started. Yeah, they all started down there and, if you remember the song that the Mamas and Papas sang, Creek Alley, oh, sure. you know, you know, um, in a coffee house, Sebastian sat. That was John Sebastian. And they're talking about McGuinn and uh, uh, McGuire, you know, um, Roger McGuinn from the birds. Listen to that song. And who was there? Right. That was part of the scene. That was the musical part of the scene. So you had the comedic counterpart of parts to it. So you had, you know, the Lenny Bruce's of the world and people who were doing different things at the time, which was antithetical to the Borscht Belt, which came a little bit before it. Yeah. We're not going to go through every chapter in the book, just so Alan doesn't get worried. But I did want to bring up, and we want the audience to read the book. Again, Greta, it's it's a great show business book if you enjoy the history of comedy and kind of how it's put together. Uh, Laugh Lines is the book for you. But we mentioned Uncle Melty before, and uh, my uncle was on that show a few times. He was also a singer, and he always said Uncle Melty uh, would have a whistle during rehearsal. He was tough, tough to work with. But uh, And you had an experience, obviously, on Saturday Night Live. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, he was, you know, on paper, it looked like a good idea. You know, <laughs> there was something poetic about the guy who at NBC, when he was in his heyday, had the number one show. And uh, it, it was at the infancy of television. And here, a generation later, there we were. And uh, we were really popular and doing what we were doing. So, it, it, you know, to bridge the two generations, if you will, sort of sounded like a good idea. But he was... He was really steeped in uh, his way, which was to get the joke, to get the laugh. So in the middle of, it's the only, to my knowledge, it's the only show that Lorne Michaels has not repeated. Right. It was a disaster. I mean, he would be in the middle of a sketch, and let's say he was supposed to play the father. You know, he would break the reality and look at the audience and crack a joke. And, <laughs> and so the whole reality of the sketch would go away. All right? And I remember him... Um, camera blocking a uh, his opening monologue and at one point this was just rehearsal in front of a camera he told the director he said when i get to this point i would like there to be a sound effect of a crowbar falling from above landing on the studio floor and sort of reverberating until it comes to a stop and the director said why and milton said well at that point i will ad lib <laughs> It looks like NBC dropped another one. Now, here you had the greatest improv plays in the world. You had Gildy, you had Belushi, you had Sandy, you had Bill Murray, okay, you had Lorraine, and he is planting an ad lib, okay? <laughs> so it was, yeah, you just take that and you just blow that up. And uh, every which way you look at it, it was emblematic of what happened, you know, in the, uh, on the whole show, Doug. I've never, like you said, you can't get it. It's not even on YouTube. There's a couple of clips I've found over the year. I'd love to see it just to see what it was like. But it's as bad as uh, as people think, huh? <laughs> well, you want to know something? I haven't seen it since back then. Since I was in the studio, you know, uh, I, I don't remember a lot of it. What we yeah. tend to remember is the process. Right, right. You know, we don't remember the product. I mean, I've done things 
that um, uh, that didn't work, but my memory of it is really good because oh, that's when we met so and so. We became friends with such and such. You know, you know. So it's the experience of working with people and creating something. Once the product is made, it's in the hands of a different god. Right. Whether or not they're going to like it, dislike it, timing, and, and and all of that. And I've also worked on some things that were very successful, but my memory of it is like, ugh. <laughs> it's the process that you remember. Sure. And there's a story in the book. You don't tell it now because you want the people to read it in the book about uh, Uncle Milty uh, in his dressing room. Well, let's leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, leave it at that. And, uh, you know, I know you've told it before, but well, let's let the audience read it. it it's, it's a classic. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let, them, uh, let them discover why ruin it. Yeah. Many jokes were made about Uncle Milty at the Friars Club, but let's just, uh, the people can make their own conclusions what this is about. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, the book is filled with stories like that. And uh, again, Alan has written for so many. We mentioned Billy Crystal. You got the movie coming out. Is that coming out? Well, I guess everything's kind of up in the air now, but is that a fall movie with Billy? Well, it, you know, something that was supposed to be in the Cannes Film Festival, and that got canceled, right? Right. Uh, I don't know if Toronto is going to happen. I don't know the, the status of it, if it's still on or if it's been canceled. You know, so I think it will be in suspension until we see. Um, you know, what's the story with movie theater? Because this is the kind of movie that will make you laugh a lot and will also make you cry. So it's the kind of experience you have that you want to be surrounded by people who will go through the same emotional kind of journey that you are, as right. opposed to watching it along with one or two other people on Netflix. Right. I have no idea what they have in mind for it, you know? Yeah. It's going to be up to the producer, but at the same time, the hope would be that it will be seen by by groups, a large audiences. We are we're lucky is, is that we got done with it before this hit. Right. I know so many productions were closed closed down because of this. We finished shooting in November, and Billy's been doing uh, the post production. And um, you know, we're, we're a couple of weeks away from having a, a, a completely finished movie. You know, there's some music that has to be done and a little this, a little that. Right. But it's been shot and the picture's been locked. And so we'll see. Very proud of it, though. Of course, you and Billy, another fellow Long Islander. You grew up uh, pretty much together going to the city, uh, to the comedy club. You got a great story in the well, book about that. Well, started the two of yeah. us when I was living back with my parents in Woodmere after college. And I started going to the club. Billy lived, lived four or five towns over in Long Beach. Long Beach he was right. already married and had their first child. And he would pick me every up every night in his little blue Volkswagen. We'd go into the city, we would tell our jokes, and on the way back, listen to the cassettes and critique each other. And the fact that we um, not only are good friends, he's still Uncle Billy to the, to the kids, uh, the fact that he and I collaborated on a, a Broadway play that he did called 700 Sundays, which won a Tony Award and was one of the most rewarding experiences that I've had, not only in my career, but in my life, yep. that my, my, my good friend trusted me with his family and we, it was a big hit, but the process once again was wonderful collaborating with him on something that was so important to him. And that's most recently this movie here today, you know, that I just mentioned with him and Tiffany Haddish, which was also a joy to do. So I've been really lucky to be able to work with my friends like Larry David and Rob Reiner 
and still remain friends. You're right. <laughs> you <know? laughs> well, love to have you on in the future because we haven't even gotten to Gary Shandling and, of course, Gilda and all the other stories. We'll do that another time. We've kept you longer than, than we said. But uh, get the book out there. If you like uh, the history of kind of comedy and how it's put together, Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier uh, by Alan Zweibel. He's been there, and he knows what he's talking about. And, uh, Alan, a real pleasure talking to you. It's available everywhere, I guess. And your website, you want to give that out or any place they can get the book? Yeah, you, 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 look, you, you can go to Amazon. You can go Barnes & Noble. You know, there's those sites. Uh, my website is alanswebel.com, so there's a link that takes you right to Amazon. The book is eminently gettable, uh, selling well, and uh, it seems that people, you know, during these trying times, uh, when they need a diversion or a couple of laughs, uh, I'm very happy that they're looking for this book. Great. It definitely delivers on that. And, Alan, a pleasure talking to you. I know you've been doing a lot of these, but uh, I tried to ask you something a little different, I hope, but uh, real uh, good to talk oh, no, to you. I love talking to you, Doug. Your, your questions were really smart, and I, it, it was more of a conversation than a Q&A, and I appreciate uh, everything, and I'd love to come on again whenever you want me. Great. Thanks, Alan. We'll talk to you soon. Take care, Doug. Thank you. Alan Zweibel, our guest, and uh, thank you for uh, tuning in. We'll see you again real soon.